Thanks, everybody. It's good to be back here with you all. What's awesome is coming back here is uh, between Matt and my relationship, and uh, it feels like we're coming back to our extended family whenever we get to come here. So it's awesome to get to be here with you this morning. Hey, so uh, I have a question. I want to settle a debate once and for all. So we just had Thanksgiving. Big debate is ham or turkey. So I think, you might, here's my theory on this. Hy-V this year definitively proved that ham is better than turkey. So if you guys noticed in their ads, it was like, if you buy a ham, we're just going to give you a turkey. Because it's obviously, like, the ham is the one that's desirable. People are obviously want the ham. It's like they're having such a hard time getting rid of turkeys that they're literally giving them away for free. So I, at our house... We went and spent Thanksgiving with my family, and my mom was planning on doing a turkey, and she's like, I guess we're doing a turkey. And I was like, why? She was like, I don't really like turkey. And I was like, I, we don't like turkey. We'd prefer ham. So we did ham day. Forget turkeys. We are th- still thankful and get to do, spend time together. But partly where I was thinking through with this last week being Thanksgiving, it was, it was actually 16 years ago that my wife and I got engaged. So it was right before Thanksgiving, and I still remember uh, the church I grew up in had kind of like a big sanctuary, tons of lights, kind of like this, and the whole time during like the Thanksgiving morning service or afternoon, whatever it was that we had, like she's just sitting there staring at the ring, sparkling because of all the different lights, and so just like that mesmerizing moment. But how we got engaged is actually a pretty funny story. So we had been dating, we kind of had a whirlwind relationship where we've been married for 15 years now. But in those early days when we were first dating, it was, we were dating for about six months or so, when all of a sudden there's that moment where we're hanging out one night and all of a sudden we look at each other, and I don't even remember who said it first. Well, I do, it was Brooke, but I don't want it to sound like she proposed to me. So one of us says to the other, all of a sudden, I want to marry you. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I want to marry you. <laughs> we had this moment where we were just like, wait, hold on, what does that mean? What did we just do? It's like, okay, there's not a ring, so we're not, this, is not a, this is not a proposal, but at least we know we're on the same page. And so we had this moment where it's like, we know where this relationship is heading. We know what we want to do. We know what the end goal is. There's going to be a ring on that finger. I am locking that girl down, and this is where we're heading. But we weren't yet actually engaged. And so it took a while for us to get engaged, partially because, so we, went, we met at University of Iowa. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and my plan was to go back to my ring guy to go get the ring. Yes, I had a ring guy. Not like a back alley, open up the coat, hey, I got a ring, but it was about a step and a half above that. And so I had this guy that my brother had introduced me to. He had used the same guy where it's like you go into his office, and it's not like walking into Hellsbergs or Zales or K, where it's like all of these things in front of you. It's this like small little office. And he's like, what are you looking for? I was like, I don't even know what any of this is. And so he pulls out something. If you collected like baseball cards or anything like that, you would see a box like this where he pulls this thing out. In it, just takes out these little slips of paper and there's diamonds in each one of these that's folded up. And he starts putting them out in front of me. And he's like, so walking me through the cut, the clarity, the color, all those things I can't remember anymore now. I was like, what am I doing? Where are we at? Anyways. So I had a guy. And so I had to get back to Chicago in order to get this ring, even though we're in Iowa City, and we know where this relationship is heading, we know what we want to do, and we just couldn't get there quite yet. So Brooke goes back to Chicago with me for Thanksgiving that year, and my plan was to go down to have lunch with my dad, who worked downtown, which is really code for I'm going to go pick up the ring. And Brooke had some friends that were going to school in downtown Chicago as well, so she came with me. 
Now, talk about the most awkward train ride into downtown Chicago ever. Because, because it was the guy, cash was king. And so I have a like, rolled up wad of cash like tucked into my sock as we're on the train going to downtown Chicago. Because my theory is, if I get mugged or robbed, it's like, here's my wallet, take that. Just please do not look in my sock. Because it's like, it was a wad. And so we're, we're heading down, we're on this train ride, we get down there, Brooke goes and hangs out with their friends. I go have lunch with my dad, which I did do, I was not lying. Then after that, go to pick up the ring. Well, the ring is not in my pocket for more than like three hours before it's on her finger, which was like kind of a bummer. I had been planning out all these elaborate pranks and things to do where I really, before Jim Helpert made this cool, really wanted to do the whole like, will you wait for me while I tie my shoe kind of moments, like all those kind of things. And I, I couldn't do those. But the funny part of it all, the night before all this happens, we kind of had a free night. So I was like, well, let's go out to dinner. So we go out to this nice dinner, nice sushi dinner. Brooke's all dressed up, nice fancy restaurant. We're hanging out. And at the end of the night, there's no ring. I didn't realize the psychological trauma that I was taking my wife through at that night because the whole time she's sitting there just waiting for the moment. When's he going to drop to a knee? Now I'm just thinking sushi is good. So we're going to go out for a good dinner. And totally right over my head of what she was expecting to come out of that night. So the next day we're downtown Chicago and we end up after I pick up the ring, I meet back up with Brooke and her friends, and we all head to, I was trying to like figure out how do I get rid of these other girls, because I just, I just want this moment to be with my wife and I. So we head to uh, the Navy Pier area, and if you've ever been in there, there's that big garden area with the shooting water and all that stuff. And so we're walking up the stairs in there, and I say to one of them, hey, when we get in there, like go peel off, go find something else to do. I'm proposing to Brooke like now, and I haven't, been, I haven't figured out how to get rid of you yet. And... <laughs> So we go in, they kind of peel off, and Brooke and I are just walking around, and underneath one of those shooting things, I get down on one knee, which is the universal symbol for what? To propose. We all understand that in our culture is this moment where when a guy gets down on one knee, presents a ring, it's a marriage proposal. It was so universal that across the way, there's a couple that had just gotten married, is doing their own wedding photos there, and the bride starts tearing up, seeing me proposing, ruining their whole moment, and sends their photographer over. So like, she's so excited, they want to be a part of this, so she sends her photographer over to take some pictures of us in the middle of this proposal thing. Crazy, crazy circumstance. And afterwards, Brooke is like, why didn't you tell me? I would have dressed up nicer. Which... <laughs> Totally would have ruined the surprise, but the night before she was all dressed up cute, and that day I still think she was beautiful, but she thought that she wanted to be a little more dressed up for that moment. But when a guy gets down on one knee, it's not the universal symbol for I need to tie my shoe, it's the universal symbol for I am proposing to you. I want you to be my bride. Very clear in our culture and in our custom. Now that is not how marriage proposals were done back in the time of Jesus. And so the reason I want to share that story of us and what I want to share this back custom is because when we look into this passage today, even in light of the series that you're going through of people living in the present as people of the future, I want to show how what Jesus was doing and what this passage even calls us back into is this promise of the certainty of Christ's return. So as, as at that point they were a people in that present day, as in this time we were in a people in this present day, there is still a future day that is coming where there is an amazing promise that is still yet to be fully revealed.
And so the marriage customs of that day begin to foreshadow and give us a view into what Jesus is doing. And so what was pretty amazing is you walk through the cultural customs of that day and how a marriage proposal would happen. First, you would have, this, it was typically kind of like the arranged marriages situation at that point. What you would have is the guy would leave his father's house to go to the house of the woman he wanted to propose to. And he would have a discussion around trying to figure out the, the price that had to be paid, the dowry that had to be paid in order to be able to, 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 to propose, to, be in, to enter into this covenantal relationship with her. And so after this bridegroom would travel, so bridegroom, so it's kind of the goofy term, but bridegroom and the bride. So after this bridegroom would travel there, after he would negotiate this price, there would be this big feast where everybody would come together. Now in this feast, this was not like sitting around having some Chick-fil-A McNuggets, or McNuggets, that's not the right, not good stuff, but not this, this is a feast. Now as a part of this feast, part of the proposal would be the guy would stop everything and he would fill up a cup of wine, and he would bring it to the potential wife-to-be, and he would offer it to her, knowing in that culture that offering of that cup of wine is the equivalent of us getting down on one knee. So she had two options at that point. She could dump the cup over, signifying, nope, not you, buddy. Uh, you don't even look good now. I can't even imagine seeing you in the morning. So it just, it's... She could dump it, signifying, nope, not going along with this. Or she could take a sip, which was her saying, yes. Yes. Now, what would happen after that, that festival, that feast would be done. And then after that, the bridegroom would have to pay the price. After that price was paid, it began this, what was called a betrothal process. Now, this betrothal process was this very interesting thing, because at this point... It's this proposal is more than our proposals are now. This proposal, this betrothal, is actually a uniting of the couple in this already but not yet fashion. And so there's this moment of what happens here is they are connected, but not fully married, but not fully apart. Now think with me for a second, even in Mary and Joseph, the story that we're just about to get into in a few weeks here, of when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, she he decided to divorce her quietly. Why would he have needed to divorce her if they weren't fully married? Because this betrothal process was a uniting process that knit the two of them together in a way that they were married, just not yet fully married. It was this already but not yet moment. So this is a significant deal, significant moment of what would happen at this point. So at this point, it would have been adultery if one of the spouses ended up having another relationship. So it is a significant moment, significantly more than what we put on proposals of our day now. Now, after the covenant, after the feast, after the proposal, after the price is paid, the man would leave the bride's home, go back to his father's house, and there he would prepare a place for them to live. He would add on to his father's house as a place to be able to bring his wife back to where they would establish their own life. And, but it took some time. So now he's over here at his father's house. She's back here in her own world. And they're trying to figure out, like, when is this moment going to happen? So she doesn't know the day. He doesn't even know the day. He's building this on, trying to get himself ready until the father finally says, you're ready, go get your bride. 
So then he would come back at some point that she has no idea. And all of this time, she's just waiting, waiting. Her heart is attuned to her, her, her groom-to-be, just waiting for this moment. And she didn't know when it would happen. And oftentimes, it was at night. It was with a shout. There was a trumpet, all of these different things. And the groom would come back with his groomsmen to gather his bride to then take her back to his father's house to have this mega feast, this seven-day-long festival, this wedding festival called Hoopa, which is a fun word, Hoopa. Now, why do I share all of that? Our proposal story, the proposal customs of that day fit so neatly into what God's story is through the Bible. And this section that I get to preach on today in Thessalonians is just one little microcosm of that whole thing. But I wanted to, to take this moment as we're looking at be, people being in the present, living as people in the future, how does that look like? How do, we, how do we live now understanding the certainty with which we know that Christ is coming back? And how do we live within that? What does that look like for us to do? And I want to begin to look at this text with you as we begin to go into this a little bit more. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're just going to read verses 13 through 18. Where Paul, as he's speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That last verse is kind of where I want to start for a moment. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't know about you, but most of my experience of people talking about end times or preaching on end times is the scare tactic it's going to be bad if you don't believe in Jesus. So man, if you're not doing things that are right, it's going to be bad, which yes, all of that is true. But Paul wrote this not as a stick that we beat people with, but something to encourage people. You see, there's two things that help people make a decision. It's either uh, the plain, uh, desire for pleasure or the absence of pain. So oftentimes I feel like our evangelism is oftentimes that, hey, avoid the pain. But there's a better way that we can begin to point people towards the certainty of who Christ is. So it's not just avoid hell, but it's actually, there's this beautiful picture that God is interweaving through his story of who he is and what the relationship that he wants to be with you. What we're going to see is that God wants you to be his bride. Isn't that such a different thing than just trying to get people to not go to hell? Versus inviting them into God's story of him calling his church his bride. So this is meant to be an encouragement. 
This is not a message about trying harder. This is not a message about what you have to do. This is a message about the certainty of what has already been done and the promise of what will happen. Both in this passage and in the next passage, Paul is saying, encourage one another. Later in verse 5, which you'll go through, I guess, in January, it says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. So what is the encouraging part of this passage then? It is the certainty of Christ's return that we begin to see through this. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time getting into eschatology or debating all the terms of premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, tribulation, all those kind of things. I'm not, I'm not doing that. If you're going to do that, I'm letting Matt do that so you guys can be mad at him instead of me. But, yes. But I don't even think that's going to be Matt's point because the, the theme of what you guys are doing with this is how are you a people in the present with an eye towards the future? Now, we can debate all those terms, and we can look at all those $5 theological words, but that's not the goal. That doesn't actually add nearly as much. So what I do want to do is look at a few things from this passage, and then zoom back out at that picture of what is God doing throughout all of time. There's a few things in here in this verse 13 through 18, where he says, in this beginning, where he's trying to, to comfort them. <clears throat> he's trying to comfort them concerning those who are asleep. Now, this, this word for asleep is kind of more metaphorical. And so it's, it's to die, but with this promise that they will wake up again. This is a different word than what just that talks specifically about death with no hope. This is a promise of there's death, they've stopped breathing, but there is still a promise of a future life. Totally different than the concept of death, dead, no hope. So what we see in this is this idea of them being alive versus being dead. And so you see even that idea of that, they, that those who were asleep, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with those who have fallen asleep. And so there's this distinction between those who have fallen asleep and those who are still awake, those who are alive right now that he's writing to. And what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to, to give them a hope for those who are no longer living, no longer alive, no longer breathing, but are in Christ. You see, because there's a huge difference if you have lost a loved one, if you have lost a friend that knew Jesus versus one that did not know Jesus, that is a very different morning experience, isn't it? You see, for those of us who have lost family, who have lost friends that knew Jesus, it's sad. We miss that person. And we have hope, knowing that the relationship that they had with our Savior means that they are with Him now. But yet, because these Thessalonians are living in a world that is this already but not yet world, they have received Christ. They've been betrothed to Christ, but they are not yet fully in that glory. They already have salvation, yet they are not fully living in that glorification. That means they're still living in a broken world. Means things are still difficult. Means there's still death where people stop breathing. Means there's still abuse. There's still problems that we live in in this world. You see, God's desire for us is that when we come to faith, we patiently wait for the return of our King 
Now that patiently waiting part is really hard for some of us. It's kind of like if you tell your kids you're going to wake up in the morning and make cinnamon rolls, so they wake up at 5 a.m. ready for those cinnamon rolls. It's like, no, 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 not 5 a.m. You go back to sleep for a few hours. We'll do that later. You have to wait patiently for the good things. We're not so good at that. We want it now. Microwave culture, give it to me now. But sometimes we have to wait patiently for the promise that we have in Christ. See, now the difference between the people that Paul's writing to and the difference of what I'd be speaking to you versus speaking to people who don't have hope is here, he's telling them not to grieve like the rest who have no hope. The pagan society that was around the Thessalonians was hopeless, where death was the end What they understood death to be was endless sleep, never waking up, no hope, nothing on the back end of that. It's not really a whole lot different than now. I'm not sure about you guys, but I've had a lot of conversations with people where you begin to go round and round and round on this whole death thing. I had a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine in high school, where his thought was death is the end. So my question to him was, so at your funeral, you're all dressed up with nowhere to go. What, What... how do, you, how do you live through, how do you, how do you get through the loss of somebody with having no hope? They were professional mourners. They were professional weepers. They were really, really good in that day and age of mourning because they had to get used to it. Because they mourned without hope. That's not what Paul is calling them to do. He's calling them to remember, have the confident assurance of understanding where our hope comes from. Look at verse 14 again. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what we see is that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. You see, we have this confident assurance. It's all sorts of metaphorical promises in the midst of this that we're going to come back to in a little bit. But what we see in the end of this then as we turn into that verses 16 and 17 is that Jesus will return with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. How's all of this going on in this passage that Paul has written to them? And I want to I want to expand, like zoom in and expand out on this this promise of this idea of the shout, the voice, the trumpet, because that plays into that broader story that I was sharing with you of the marriage customs of Jesus's day. And so I want to kind of like zoom back out for a minute and look at this whole storyline, look across different parts of Scripture so you can kind of see this thing coming together because oftentimes what happens, because we don't understand the culture that this was written into, we miss these little clues, these little things that help us to understand what is God really doing, what is He really saying? And so if, you, if we look back, I want, to, I want to walk back through that story that I shared with you, not Brooke and my story, even though it's a fun one, but the story of how did a bridegroom propose to the bride, how did they become married, how did they become united, and I want to look at that through Scripture with you so you can begin to see how this promise here, that as Paul is giving the Thessalonians this promise, there's, you don't have to be mourning as if there's no hope because we have this confident assurance that Christ is coming back because that's the promise that he's given us. So let's look through that, because it's fun. 
So how did they establish the covenant? Well, it was initiated by the bridegroom. The bridegroom would leave his father's house and he would go to where the bride-to-be was. Think with me to John chapter 6 where Jesus says, Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So we can see in Scripture that, that Jesus left his home, left his authority to come to earth to pursue you and me. Now, he would have to negotiate the price to be paid, and you can look through different sections of Scripture. Romans 6.23 is one that probably comes to your mind of the wages of sin is death. This is not the kind of death that we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians, this death of falling asleep with hope. This is death, permanent separation from God. That is the wage of sin, is separation from death, for separation from God. You can even look back into Genesis 2 and 3 when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden when they were told, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. They didn't stop breathing, but they were separated from God. So this wages of sin is death. This wages of sin is eternal separation from the love of the Father. Now Jesus knew that the price of sin had to be paid with blood. If you enjoy the book of Leviticus... I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because people are just going to think you're weird. But if you enjoy the book of Leviticus, what you actually see in that whole book, all of these laws, it's this, this theme, this idea where the first and the last sections mirror each other and the second and the second and the last mirror each other and the third and the third to last mirror each other. And in the middle of it, is this, it's just this giant arrow pointing at this day of atonement. In chapters 16 and 17 of Leviticus, the whole point of that book that we're supposed to see and understand is that Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the atonement. It is on Him that our sins have been laid. So Jesus understood that the only way to create a way back to the Father was through blood. And not the blood of a lamb that had to be sacrificed once every year, but His blood that was sacrificed once and for all, in which when it was done, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus understood that a price had to be paid because the wages of sin was death. Now think to the feast with me. Think of the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. It's where we get communion from. I was having a conversation one time with a guy who was uh, in Catholic seminary and we were talking through the difference of Eucharist versus how, how we as evangelicals view communion and the difference of those things. And he was pointing back to, to the, the, the Last Supper of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and so therefore that's why we think that it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. Like, okay, but let, so I asked him, look back then with me at what meal were they celebrating together? That wasn't just some random Friday night dinner or Thursday night dinner, it was the Passover meal that was instituted long ago when Moses walked the people out of Egypt. So what is the significance in that meal? The significance of that bread in that, I don't know if you guys have ever gone through the, the, that stuff or not. Maybe it's something that some other day I can come back through and do that because that would be a lot of fun. But there's, there's significance in that meal where when Jesus said, this is my body, it was a symbol in that meal that they had been doing ever since they were little boys. They had no idea, okay, we crack this bread, we hide this, this bread comes back out, don't really fully understand what we're doing, but Jesus is pulling that back out and saying, this is my body, 
This is me. I'm the one that is broken. I'm the one that's put away. I'm the one that's brought back out. This is my body that is broken for you. So if often as you eat this meal, this Passover meal that we've turned into communion, do this in remembrance of me. And the cup was one of, I forget if it was like four or five different cups, but it was the cup after the meal. If you read through the text, it's very specific to say it's the cup after the meal, which would have been the cup of redemption. And Jesus says, as he takes the cup of redemption, he says, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Take this and drink it. And he offered his disciples a cup in the middle of a feast. And they would have understood that to be Jesus proposing to them. See, we miss these things in our culture. But when you understand the story of what God is doing through all of this, they understood that if they took that cup and drank it, they were saying yes to Jesus, that I will be your bride. Now, guys, don't get weird on me yet. I know it's a little weird for us to think, I'm a bride of Christ. But the church, the church, not Stonebridge Church, not Mosaic Church, the church is the bride of Christ. And as a small C church, that's a part of the big C church, we too are part of the bride of Christ. We walk into this marriage proposal. Every single time we take communion, which we're going to have a chance to do a little bit later, we're not just taking it remembering, we're actually re-solidifying our desire to be the bride of Christ, where again, it's that marriage proposal reminder every single time we take communion that is saying, yes, I will. So Jesus offered the cup in the middle of the meal, and they all drank it. After that meal, the price was paid. Jesus was betrayed, ultimately ended up on the cross where he paid the ultimate price. He didn't just stop breathing. He had to be separated from the Father for a time. See, this is the part for me where this this totally blew my mind when I realized this several years ago, of Jesus' agony of going to the cross was not just being afraid of the pain of the whipping, not just being afraid of the pain of his, his his, his wrists being nailed to a tree, wasn't the pain of slowly asphyxiating. The thing I think Jesus was so afraid of is the one time in all of eternity past and all of eternity present, the one time when Jesus had to become like fully man, like we were born into separation from the love of the Father. So as God turned his back on his son, turned his back on himself, so that he would never ever have to turn his back on me. That price that was paid, I was supposed to try to pay that, and I couldn't. You were responsible to pay that, but you can't. The price that was set, separation from the Father, was paid by Jesus, the one perfect lamb, the one that did not have sin in him, yet they treated him like a thief and a murderer. Jesus paid that price. After that cup was drank and the price was paid, in the marriage customs, they would have been husband and wife, but yet not together. 
after the establishment started that already but not yet. They were already married but not yet married. It was this betrothal process where at this point the bridegroom would return back to his father's house to prepare a room for them to live in. Now, maybe if you're savvy with your Bible, you're thinking of John 14 with me where Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. So we see that kind of just melding into the marriage customs that Jesus has gone now and he's preparing a room for me and he's preparing a room for you. He's preparing as many rooms as he needs for those who he's calling to faith in himself. So that's what the bridegroom's doing. But what was, the, what was the bride doing in this time? She was having to wait patiently, not knowing the day, not knowing the hour, not knowing when her bridegroom was going to come back to get her. Now here's where it gets a little wild. The, the bride in this time could still go crazy. She could still do something foolish. She could still fall into adultery. She could still walk away in this already but not yet moment. She's supposed to be preparing herself, preserving herself, waiting for her, bri- for her bridegroom to come back and get her. Now, this is where it gets a little fun. This is kind of where this specifically ties into this passage. At the end of this separation, it was going to be at an unknown hour. And the passage you guys are going to deal with next time you do this in chapter 5, it says about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them like labor pains in a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So that moment when that's going to happen is not known. Even in the book of Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying, this is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect Now, it's interesting because then it goes on to say with a shout and with a trumpet, Nora, why don't you come on up for something? Got a fun little show and tell. So in this passage, in in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this is a miniature shofar. This is the kind of, when it says trumpet, this is kind of what it's talking about. We have a guy in our church that we're borrowing this from. He's got like a mega one. This is like a bored out ram's horn thing. And so every single, oh, just give me a minute. Hold on. And so every, every Sunday morning, Jeff, he's actually the guy that's preaching in Marshalltown today, but every Sunday morning he brings his mega shofar and will blow that thing. I don't know if you guys know Nathan Bong from Ames, but he was over helping us with some stuff one day and didn't know that was about to come, was talking in the conversation. All of a sudden this shofar goes off behind him and he's like, what, what just... And it was entertaining for us. But the reason that Jeff blows that every Sunday morning is it's that, it's that kind of that call to arms that the, the Israelites would do. Think back to walking around Jericho, blowing the trumpet's horn. Walking all these different times and the trumpet horn is blown. It's this call to arms. It's, it's this awareness of be ready. Something is coming. Something is about to happen. And so this is the miniature version, which is a little bit harder to play. So I've asked Nora, who plays different instruments in our house. I'm not the instrument player. So Nora, give us a little sample of what the shofar is going to sound like. Good work, kiddo.
So there's going to be the trumpet's blast. There's going to be a yell, and the whole bridal party of the groom is going to come with him. After that, they're going to return back to the Father's house. The wedding guests are the Old Testament saints and martyrs. And then there's this time of tribulation where the church is going to be veiled in heaven. And at the end of that unveiling of the bride, Colossians 3 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, as we look through this passage, as we look through these marriage customs, there's some of you here today who are still on the outside of that marriage proposal. Some of you today that maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you've like done the church thing, maybe you've like, you've showed up every Sunday, you've checked the box, you've done the things, maybe you even read your Bible once in a while and you, or you dust it off like I used to have to. But there's some of you who are here that have not fully surrendered your hearts to Christ. There's some of you here that when that marriage proposal was given to you, you didn't really know what that meant. Kind of like if we were to, to bring this into our modern vows, it's as if Jesus is standing, waiting, calling your name with this vow, saying, I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my bride. And I do promise and covenant before God, my Father, and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful Savior and Bridegroom in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in faithfulness and in waywardness for time and eternity. In a few moments, we're going to have a chance to take communion together. Maybe this can be a time for you to ponder, what does it mean to actually take that communion, to accept that communion, to drink that cup? Maybe for some of you sitting here, that'll be the first time that you understand the call and the invitation that God is putting out before you to surrender your hearts, to surrender your life to Him. So maybe it can be your turn to do these vows. I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful bride in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow for time and for eternity. See, because Jesus is calling you and waiting for you. A lot of you in here have already surrendered your lives to Jesus. A lot of you in here are living in that already but not yet weird world. And just like the bride could fall into adultery, we can fall into a similar spiritual adultery. We can begin to put ourselves back on the thrones. We can begin to devote ourselves to the godless world system and look at the things that offer us that instantaneous pleasure because we don't want to wait patiently for the good thing to come. In James chapter 4, James writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So there's a call to stay awake, to stay focused on our king, to keep reminding ourselves of our bridegroom that is to come back. So today for you as we do communion might be a day where you renew those vows, so to speak. Time, maybe you've wandered a little bit from the cross. Maybe you've put yourself back at the center of your life. Maybe today is a time to come back 
to the foot of the cross and again say, Jesus, yes, I will. Jesus gives a promise of his return in John 14 where he says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Let's live in light of that promise that we have a king who is coming back. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for the truth of who you are. God, I thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and the promise of what you are going to do in the future that you have called us into, God. God, I thank you that you have paid the price for me, that you have offered me, Lord, but I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. God, you have lived the life that we could not live to pay the price that we could not pay so that you could invite us back into relationship with you on your dime, not on ours. And so God, as we look to communion, as we look to this week, Lord, can you continually put on our hearts the reminder that we are your bride and that you desire to be in relationship with us, Lord, and can our response be to want to continue to be in relationship with you and learn more and more what that means. Praise us all in Jesus' name. Amen.